Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. This, this morning, we're starting a new series, and uh, we're going to be going through the letter uh, of First Peter in the New Testament. And uh, today is kind of uh, creating a, a bucket or a container to, to kind of wrap our heads around um, what Peter is saying and, and why he's talking the way he is. And so um, we want to show that video um, to kind of give that, that overview, that big picture of, of what this idea of exile means, because um, we're going to kind of get into this this morning. Um, as I've been working through this and, and, and doing some study, it's been really, I would say for me, it's kind of a, what I would call a seismic shift in my perception and how I'm thinking. It's one of those things where um, this isn't anything new, or this isn't some new thing that, that we found. Um, this is something that's been there all along, but it's kind of like that thing where, I don't know if you've ever gotten like a new car or a different car than the car that you own, and uh, you're kind of like, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I, this, I really like this, and I've, I've not seen it around, and then when you get it, you're like, all you can see is those cars on the road. Like, they're everywhere. You're kind of like, I've never seen another car like this except now that I have one. Like, they're everywhere. And, and so the reality is that those, it's not that those cars weren't there before, it's just you weren't tuned into seeing them. And, and for me, and, and my, my hope and prayer for you is that as we work through First Peter and as we talk about um, these things, that, that you will be able to see something that's always been there, that's been there the whole time, but you're going to be tuned into it. And for me, it's changed my perspective on how I want to live and interact with the world around me and what I'm, what I'm doing now in preparing to be the kind of person that can participate in God's kingdom. So um, I'm super excited about this morning. And uh, here's a question. Uh, when people run into you, when you introduce yourself to people or when people meet you, um, oftentimes the question that's asked is, where are you from? And so I'm gonna ask that question of everyone in here. And when I ask the question, I'm gonna ask it in just a second. I want everyone to answer where you're from at the same time so I can hear where everyone's from. So, um, where are you from? Excellent. Now I know where everyone's from. Um, and so, the uh, funny thing is, is a lot of times people will kind of ask another version of that question. They'll say, where is home for you? Because where we're from, sometimes you think that, well, I didn't really, like, I, I didn't really fit into where I was from, but, but where's home for you? And, and when we think about the idea of home, we think about a whole bunch of characteristics. Um, I mean, beyond just the specific location, like an address of, hey, this is where my home is. But those characteristics of home are things like, it's a place where I'm accepted, welcomed, or, or where I feel like I belong. Um, there's that statement that people make that home is where the heart is. It's where your heart is anchored. It's where, um, the th- it's, it's where you love. It's, it's where your heart is attached to. Um, and I think, not, not a bad thing, I think in a lot of ways, our home is where our stuff is. Um, I remember when 
um, the McManuses moved here and, and Danny took the job as uh, the middle school director, um, their stuff in the truck got, like, took almost a month or I don't know, maybe it was even longer to get here. So they had like nothing in their apartment, but when their stuff got there, it felt more like home. And so that seems like a legitimate thing. Um, home is where I'm emotionally and financially invested. Um, it's, it's where I, I, I have these strong emotional ties to, but also I've, I've invested a lot of, of, of my resources, whether financial or time or that kind of stuff. Um, home tends to be described as somewhere that I feel safe or comfortable or familiar, happy. Um, home is where I can get rest. Um, you know, if you've ever been, if you've ever gone on vacation for a while or gone on a business trip or um, been out and about for a while, um, there's something about coming home and sleeping in your own room in your own bed as opposed to wherever you've been sleeping for, you know, the last month or so um, or the last week. or the, It's just always good to come home. And so these are all things that make us feel home and these are all things that we, I would guess, that we all want to experience wherever we live. But the question that I would ask this morning is, is, the pers- is really making these things my pursuit or, or the lack of these things, is the lack of these things a bad thing or is my pursuit of these things a bad thing? Do I want to find home to the, to the furthest degree that I experience home here right now? Is that something that, that maybe the Bible teaches? Because we hear Jesus talking about um, this idea of home and following him, and we hear, we see the biblical writers writing about it. Um, John chapter 17, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, or I'm sorry, he says, um, I have given, speaking to God the Father, he says, I have given them, his disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus himself says, um, those who follow me aren't, this isn't home. He says, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't where all of those things get fulfilled. Um, he says they don't belong here. Um, he says they, they won't feel ultimately safe here. They, they, won't, they won't find rest here because this isn't their home. Later in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says something. He says, but our, he says uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul, Paul kind of takes it and he says, yeah. He says, um, don't be assimilated by this world. Don't resemble this world. Don't reflect this world. Don't be an imager of the world around you, but be, in, be transformed by the renewing of your mind in, in faith in Christ Jesus and, and be an imager of God, be a reflector of Jesus. And then, and then a verse that probably a lot of church people are familiar with, 
Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, so there we see this idea, this idea of citizenship, which takes it to this other level, not just the world, but, but our nationality, our, our place that we were born in, in and became a part of that nation, that state, that, that place, that city. He says our citizenship is different than we think when we are in Christ. And, and we probably... Probably, at least if we've grown up in church or been in church for any amount of time, we, we know these things. We know that Jesus says things like, you're not of the world because you're part of me. We know things that, that, like Paul says, that don't think like the world. And we know that our citizenship is in heaven. And then for some, maybe you didn't know that. And maybe that's new to you. And you're kind of like, well, that's an interesting, interesting concept. But here's my question for this is, is, do we really live in light of those things that the Bible says? Do we really live that way? Does it affect how we make decisions, where we go, how we see the world around us, how we see ourselves fitting in the world or not fitting in the world? Is this something that really has weight in our lives? Here's, here's something that I want you to consider. The more my life moves toward harmony with Jesus, the more disharmony I will experience with the world. The more my life moves toward harmony with Jesus, the more disharmony I will experience with this world. The more like Jesus I am, the more tension there will be with the world around me. Um, it's interesting for anybody who says, who, who maybe thinks or has the idea or notion that, you know, following Jesus will make things easy. Um, actually, following Jesus makes us become more like Jesus, which makes us become less like the world, therefore creating tension with the world. We become less unified with the world in the way the world functions and decides and behaves and thinks and, 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 and values. See, this is an absolutely true statement. And, and, and see, if, if this isn't accurate of my life, if I seem to feel really, if I feel like I really fit in this world, if I, if I feel harmony with the world and how the world makes decisions and judgments and values, you can't have both harmony with Jesus and harmony with the world. And so if I feel pretty comfortable with the world, that might be an indicator that I have a growth problem, that I'm not actually becoming like Jesus. Because if I'm more in harmony with the world than I was 10 years ago, it probably means that I'm not in greater harmony with Jesus. Because you can't be both of those. It's, it's not possible. And it doesn't matter what country you live in. It's not possible. See, 1 Peter was written to help Jesus' followers to, to become the kind of people who are prepared to participate in God's kingdom, which is their actual home. God's kingdom is, is our home. If, if you are a Christ follower, if you've surrendered to Jesus and, and received forgiveness of sins and salvation, then, then God's kingdom is your home. You are actually a foreigner here. 
You're in exile, actually. See, there's a perspective, there's a perspective change here from ruling to serving. See, I think one of, one of the problems with the church historically is a problem that's just ingrained in humanity, is that we are bent toward ruling. We are not bent toward serving. See, it's so easy to say, well, I've received, you know, I, I follow Jesus and I'm going to make sure that I fight for what's right and I will do what, what needs to be done to stand up for what's right and almost behave in a way that I am an insider, that I am part of the establishment that, that, that makes the rules or controls. But you see, what, what, what we are in Christ is we're not rulers yet, we're, we're servants. Yes, we will rule with Jesus in his kingdom. That's biblical. But for now, we serve. And serving is one of the foundational ways that we pre prepare to participate with Christ in his kingdom. If you're not serving and you focus on ruling, then you're not actually preparing to participate in Christ's kingdom. And, and, and so, so we have to recognize that and understand that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first two, because, because as I said, this morning I want to try to create a bucket or a container for us to wrap our heads around this idea, because like I said, for me, I'm in a process right now of, of what I would call a seismic shift of how I think about myself in this world and how I think of anyone who is a Jesus follower. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, Peter opens his letter this way. He says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter, the apostle of Jesus, one of the 12 who walked with Jesus while he was here in the flesh in his earthly ministry, uh, he happened to be one of the kind of inner inner core that Jesus uh, hung out with, one of three, three disciples who were always invited to go further with Jesus. And, and so Peter, and, and then he's, he's one of the main leaders of the early church. He says, this is what I'm writing to you. And he says, I write, he says, to the elect exiles who are in all of these different places. You see, First Peter is a letter not written to a specific church, but more to an area. It was written to the churches in Asia Minor. So there's all of those cities listed. They were all cities in Asia Minor, and they, they had churches in those cities that had been founded and were growing. And Peter's writing to all of them. And, and, and it's interesting. I mean, it'd be, it'd be similar to, to, to having uh, a letter that was written by, let's say, somebody who, who God gave a message for us to, to the churches of the Central Valley. 
um, to the church in Modesto and to the church in Mantique and the church in Fresno. And, and, and if that were the case, that's really what this is. So it's like Paul writes the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus in particular. Peter's writing to a group of people in churches. And, and, and so it's interesting that as he addresses them, he said, I write to the elect exiles in these churches. So what's interesting about that, and, and that's this, this wording right here in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that car that I hadn't seen before, but now I'm seeing everywhere. Why does Peter refer to the believers in these churches as exiles? Now, it would make perfect sense if these churches are primarily made up of Jewish believers. Because the, the Jews were still in exile. They, they were still living in in their in places maybe that they'd lived before, but they were still under the role, the rule of a, of a foreign government. All the way since Babylon, that just goes from kingdom to kingdom to empire to empire, Babylon, Persia, we get to Greece and Rome, and they're still there. So it would make sense if Peter was writing a letter to people who were expressly Jewish, who were, from, who were of Israel, in saying, I, I write to you the exiles. But here's the problem with that idea, is that these churches in Asia Minor, there were some Jewish converts in those churches, but they were primarily made up of Gentiles who placed their faith in Jesus. They weren't Jewish exiles who were living. These were people, that, so in the church, in Galatia, he writes, that's one of the churches he writes to, and, and, he, and he calls them exiles. So, so let me ask you this. How many of you were born here in Modesto? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few people. And, and the rest of us fall in the category of, of being, uh, obviously, everybody is born somewhere. And so we're either born here, or maybe you were born in California. Maybe you were born in a different state but you were born in this country. Some of you maybe were born in another country, but now you are a citizen of this country or, or, or something like that. And so there's a reality which would be interesting if somebody wrote a letter to this church and referred to you as exiles, wouldn't that hit you weird? Because, no, 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 I was, I was born in Modesto. Like, this is, this is my home. Like, I, I'm not an exile. I'm not, I mean... I mean, I would understand if, like, when you were a child, you were kidnapped and taken to Syria, and then you were stuck there, and, that, and that's, that's what happened in your life. I would say, yeah, that, that would make sense. If I was writing you a letter there, I'd say in exile, that you are somewhere that you were not, that, that is totally foreign to you. But he calls them exiles. The word he uses here is uh, the Greek word uh, peripedidimus. Which, which is used uh, in context basically with the idea that this, it's a person who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to abide there with the natives temporarily. That's the word, the force of the word. So it's not just like this general idea of like exile, you're, you just kind of feel a little uncomfortable. No, it's, it's used in particular of a foreigner in a, in a different country living and breathing among the natives temporarily. That's what he's calling these people. Um, 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word is used in Genesis 23, verse 4, where Abraham, Sarah, his wife passes away, and so he's going through this foreign land, and he wants to buy property to bury her, and he refers himself with this term being a sojourner or an exile, saying, look, I am temporarily here. I am not uh, I'm not a native of this place, but I'd like to buy some property to bury my wife. Later in Hebrews 11:13, this word is used as well um, in referencing the Genesis 24 passage. And, and so it's not just some general title that, that Peter's using here. He's saying something very specific. And so really an exile is a person or people faced with a different culture and different gods. And, uh, you know, back for, for those living in Rome, it was the Roman gods, but, 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 but really gods can be, th- really they are things that demand loyalty and love. Here in our, in our nation, we have lots of gods, um, things that demand our loyalty and love. Um, and they constantly participate, or, or, or they con- constantly um, challenge and, 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 and desire our attention and our affection and our loyalty over God. They're, they're in constant competition with the one true God. And, and so really, when, when people are in exile, when, which means you're in a different place, a different country with a different ruling nation that is foreign to you, and you're a group of people... There's a couple conventional options that people have when they are in exile. One conventional option is to revolt and you win or lose. You overthrow that governing body that has authority over your your area. And so so you can you can do the revolt thing, which sometimes works out, sometimes doesn't work out. Um and, and so you can try that. The other option, conventional option, is to give in and assimilate. Is you say, well, you know, if, I mean, if we can't, you know, we, we don't feel like we're going to win this, so we will just become exactly like the culture and the environment around us. In the revolt part, it's, it's hard because you, you've placed yourself into a lot of danger because usually when you're in exile, it means the country around you is far more powerful than you are. And if you just assimilate, well, then you're in danger of losing everything about who you were, your identity, who you are. And so, really, both of those options come with pretty significant risks and dangers of losing something of who you are. But see, there's another way to be in exile. There's, there's actually a biblical way that is different from both of these ways, which kind of makes sense because those are both ways that the world in which we live chooses to function and respond, whereas God always gives us a way that tends to be disharmonious with the decisions and the values of the world around us. And so there's another way. And so the prophet Jeremiah prophesied to Israel when they were in exile, when they went into exile in Babylon. And uh, so, so they were taken from their homes and they were, some of them were taken to Babylon, some of them were left in Jerusalem, but they were under the authority and the power of the Babylonian government. And so Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4, he has a message for Israel in their exile. So listen, listen to what Jeremiah says. Just listen to this. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Now, now you can think about the conventional options is I want you to revolt and overthrow the Babylonians or I just want you to blend in. Keep your heads down, blend in, and just look like them. Here's what he says. Build houses and live in them. Build a house, live in it. Set, set down a foundation of a house and, and, and live there. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Not only build houses, but, but actually go to work. Do things that provide for you, yourself. But, but then even more so, he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. So, so he says, build houses, plant a garden, get to work, and, and, and don't just kind of say, well, I live in this. Remember, Babylon was a pagan nation. Their values were brutality, conquest. They had all kinds of foreign gods. It was a, it was a pretty evil government, and God says, okay, so what do you do when you're, when you're there? I want you to build a house. I want you to go to work. I want you to raise a family. Who wants to raise a family in an environment like that? But he says, and raise a family. And then he says this, he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So, so hold on. So, so he's saying, here's the way the exile functions, is that you build houses, you, 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 you work, you plant a garden, you, you raise a family, and you work to benefit that nation and that city. And you pray that God would bless that city. And, and, and he says, he says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So, so the way of the exile, biblically, is that you participate in the nation and the city that you're exiled in. You, you, don't, you don't build walls and close off and say, I'm not going to let... I'm not going to get to know anyone. I'm not going to let anyone uh, uh, have any access to me. And we're going to have all our own stuff so that we don't, we don't like start to overlap with their stuff. He says, no, this, and, and how the city goes, you go. So as exiles, do this. But then he, says, then he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know, and so, so he says, so he says there's, there, see, there's these prophets in Israel who were saying, God's gonna annihilate Babylon and this is, this is, just don't do anything and just stand strong and let God destroy Babylon because we're God's people and we're special. And, and those prophets were saying things that God was not communicating. And, and so, so, so God says through Jeremiah, he says, don't listen to them. In fact, I'll give you an idea. 
you're going to be here for 70 years. <laughs> By my hand, you're going to be here for 70 years. And as we learned, this is exactly the time that we talked about in Zechariah in our last series. That was towards the end of the 70 years where the people were saying, God, when will this, this come to pass? And Jeremiah asked the question, this time is for you to become the kind of people who are ready to participate in God's kingdom. And they weren't taking that seriously. And these prophets were, were, were speaking against God. And so then the last verse, verse 11, probably the most misused verse maybe in the whole Bible. God says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The context of that verse is in exile. <laughs> it's not a prosperity doctrine. <laughs> what it's saying is that you are in this place and I want you to become more like me and image me and reflect me during this time of exile, and I will bring you out of exile eventually because I have plans for you that are beyond your imagination, but I'm going to accomplish that. And frankly, it's going to be in my kingdom. And while you'll experience maybe welfare in this world as exiles, depending on where you're exiled, it's not going to be over until you step into my kingdom. So basically what, what, what he says in Jeremiah is, he says, settle in, live life, work towards success for the nation, but always remember where you're from, who your loyalty and your love is anchored to. Because what you can't do in exile is accept and pursue the gods of those nations. So at no point did God say, yeah, and go ahead and worship the idols and the gods that Babylon worships. What he said was, live life to the best that you can, but remember who your loyalty, who you're loyal to and who your love is toward. See, the other way, the biblical way, is to do good and live in peace, but don't mistake that place for home and you have a mix of loyalty and subversion. It's this idea that you live in the place where you are, but when it asks you to place your loyalty or love on something other than God, you have to be humbly subversive. You see that modeled, and, and Peter, as he expresses these different ideas in 1 Peter, will see what that looks like moving forward. You see, Jesus' followers are exiles. We, we are exiles not because we're displaced from our homeland, but because Jesus is our new home and this world does not recognize Jesus. That's why we are exiles. If you have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've received salvation and forgiveness of sins, then you are an exile in this world, in this nation, in this city. See, at the end of, of the letter in chapter 5, Peter suggests that he's writing from Babylon. He's actually writing from, from Rome, and, and, but he says from Babylon, and so, see, the idea there is that 
every nation that ever has been and ever will be in this world, in all of human history, is a Babylonian kingdom. Babylon is any institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinition of good and evil, right and wrong. The only nation that did not start out as Babylon is Israel, because God called Abram out of Babylon, and he called him, and God said, I will make a people for myself through you. And so Israel is the only nation that is the exception. No other nation, Russia, Syria, England, the United States, Mexico, all of those nations are Babylon in their very nature and from their very inception. You may say, well, but the U.S. was founded on a lot of a lot of it was founded on Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah, but it's always been Babylon. The U.S. was never chosen and set apart by God. It was chosen and set apart by God to do, get God's will accomplished, just like Iraq was, because God uses every nation to accomplish his purposes. But it's all Babylon. You see, we need to recognize that when we surrender to Jesus, we begin a life as exiles in this world, including the nations that we were born and grew up in. And, and, and so Peter goes on to explain, this is, this is how, this is how you have, have become exiles. Because there's always a process of how, well, how did, how did this happen? Well, starting in verse 33, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. His great mercy is how we became exiles. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we are, we are exiles because we now have a living hope. And that living hope is defined by three, basically three things. We have a new birth. We have a new origin. You see, we raise our hands and say, well, I was born here. I was born there. Well, actually, the reality is that you were born in Christ at some point during your life. And that changes your birth you now are born of Christ, which means you are now in exile here. You have a new destination. Your homeland is now the city of God. The, the kingdom of Jesus is your new nation of origin because that's what you were reborn into. And, and so there is, see, we traded something. We traded comfort and we traded belonging in this world for an inheritance and to become heirs with Christ Jesus in everything that God has prepared. See, not only do we have that, but we also have a new position. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that, that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, not only do we have a new birth, but we have a new position. We are in the position of an exile. And notice what he says in verse 6. He says, in this there is joy. Although, for a little while, while we are in exile, we will be grieved by various trials. I think a really clear example of this is yesterday. People in a community in Dayton, Ohio, people in a community in El Paso, Texas, Two very evil people went and shot and killed all kinds of people. That's, we grieve about that. That's terrible. There's no excuse for that. That's absolute evil born of sin. Yet here's the thing. We grieve with those communities and those people but here's the thing. Our nation will argue about what to do about that, how to fix it. And eventually, they'll probably come to some point of passing laws and coming to a solution and a conclusion. But here's the problem. All of the solutions that our nation will come up with will just trade one terror for another because the only solution to what we face is Jesus. There is no other solution and frankly, our nation will never come to that solution because it never has and never will surrender to Jesus as king. Jesus has never been, God has never been the God of this country. I'd say maybe one of the closest things that we can see is from its inception, the God of this country is independence, which in some ways is a good thing, but not when it competes with God. And, and, and so we have this new position where it says that we will grieve in this world because we see the truth and we see this living hope, yet the world continues to reject it. And then finally, we have a new birth, a new position, but we have an old plan. Sometimes you throw out the old plan because it's not working and you want a new plan. Sometimes you throw out the old plan before you should because you just need to have patience. Here's the deal, and I think we need to all agree to this right now. Let's not throw out the old plan. Let's stick with the old plan. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
foretold. This is an old plan that was foretold by Zechariah and all the prophets. That God would someday make us exiles in this world and our home would be his home and we would live and work in this world to make it better and for God's glory. That God foretold, and, 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 and it's interesting, at the end of that, verse 12, it says that angels just want to look into. They're, they're baffled by this. Here's the reality, that the angels don't experience the gospel the way we do. They don't, they're not recipients of redemption. In fact, probably to the angels, this looks nuts. That God would forgive and give up himself to bring back people who rebelled against him. You see, the Old Testament prophets saw salvation from far off. Angels marvel at what God has done in Christ, but we actually get to experience all of it. We get to be recipients of it. And so as, 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 we, as we think about moving forward and we think about what it means to be exiles in this world around us, here's some big picture keys to being exiles the way God has called us to be exiles. And so the, the first thing is this, is that I believe that we are encouraged and called to be hopeful, brokenhearted outsiders. Hopeful, brokenhearted outsiders. You see, here's one of the, I think that the core of my frustration for most of my life as a believer has been that I have been thinking of myself not as a hopeful, brokenhearted outsider, but as a victorious, hard-hearted insider. That somehow I think that I have a right or am entitled to being better respected because I follow Jesus or better listened to because I've given my life to Jesus or that because Jesus is going to conquer all, that somehow I should see more good things around me. And, 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 but I've been seeing myself as a son of God, but also as a citizen of this world. So I think we need to shift our focus, a focused mind with a hurting heart. You see, we need to be hopeful, brokenhearted outsiders. Hopeful in the sense that we have a new living hope. We know that Jesus will make everything right. Brokenhearted, not callous-hearted, brokenhearted because when things happen in the world, when there's tragedy or when there's people who do bad like they're going to do because they still are of this world, that we are brokenhearted by that, yet also that we, are, we recognize the fact that we are outsiders. This is not my country of origin. That has changed. That in verse 6, he talks about there's this tension of joy and grief that we'll navigate. You see, human culture is characterized by shame and is all headed toward destruction, including American culture, from the very beginning. American culture does not belong to Christians, neither in reality nor theologically. You can't get there. What we are experiencing right now is really not much different from 40 or 100 years ago, we've not fallen from Christian ownership. When we say things like, I felt more comfortable at this time in American history, or I felt more, feel more comfortable today, what that's actually saying about you is it's reflecting your disharmony with Christ. Because you see, maybe the generations that have gone before 
almost couldn't see the distinction between them and Jesus, which is the enemy's evil way of assimilating us, that being Christian is being American. The next generations, they won't have that problem. They'll have a whole different problem. And, and, and so we have to be careful. You see, the more my life moves towards harmony with Jesus, the more disharmony I will experience with the world. And so as we see in Jeremiah and throughout the entire Bible, we are called to faithfully participate in our nation of exile while faithfully pursuing and submitting to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to wall ourselves off, but we're called to participate in our nation of exile and pursue and submit to Jesus. Here's the thing. The greatness of Christian exiles is not in our success, but in our service. Whether we win or lose, we are those who image for the world truth, beauty, and joy. We don't own culture or rule it. We serve it as hopeful, brokenhearted outsiders for the good of humanity and the glory of Jesus. We need to understand that if, that if you see yourself as a ruler in this world, you are not preparing yourself to participate in God's kingdom. You are preparing yourself to remain in the kingdom of the enemy. If you are serving, you are preparing yourself to participate in God's kingdom. As I close this morning, I want to throw some questions out for your communities that to, to kind of work through as we begin to wrap our head around this idea of being in exile. First question is this, does my life resemble a citizen of or an exile from this world? What does it look like? Does my life look like I'm fully here? And I'm a citizen of this world and my, my happiness and frustration and all of that goes up and down with how the world around me goes? Or does my life resemble an exile from this world? And do I act like the biblical exile is called to act? Second question, as I experience the world around me, am I characterized as a hopeful, brokenhearted outsider or am I angrily trying to reclaim what I think I've lost or just blend in? I think there's way too many of us in the church who are angrily trying to reclaim what we think we've lost. But do you know who took it away from us? Jesus did. <laughs> when we traded our nationality for Jesus, he shifted us. Third question is this. What one thing can I do right now that will help me remember how I am called to live and impact What's one thing I can do right now, this week, that will help me remember what I've been called to do, that I'm in exile, and that I've been called to participate in the nation of exile and to pursue Jesus and submit to him? I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come up. I'm gonna pray for us and close, and, and if, if you would like prayer this morning, I'd invite you to come up and, and receive prayer. Um, as we pray this morning, we want to remember those people and communities who are affected by the shootings in El Paso and in, in Dayton and in Gilroy. And um, again, it's brought me back to center that, that, that what I am here is, I, is, is this idea of an exile in this world. And this world's not going to get better in any way. 
but that I can live my life as an exile in the way of Jesus that he's called me to live. That I can be a hopeful, brokenhearted outsider until I'm called to go back home. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, I thank you for your faithfulness and God, how clear you are in helping us to understand who we are and the work, the miracle that you've done in our lives. Father, I do lift up those communities and those families and people who are suffering today because of the evil of sin in the world. And God, unfortunately, the world is not going to figure this out no matter what they decide. And so, Father, I pray that you could help us to continue to be hopeful because we have that living hope. That, God, that, that we would be soft and, and our hearts will have compassion and be broken for those who we may not have a lot in common with, but God, that we see that they're stuck in the cycles of this world. And Father, that we would recognize ourselves as outsiders, that God, that we will never define ourselves as being insiders here, that we would be loyal to you and have all of our love toward you, Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.